Welcome to Intelligence Talks from the research team at Knight Frank. Intelligence Talks brings you the latest insights on property market trends and forecasts, along with expert analysis from industry leaders. I'm Anna Ward, Senior Residential Analyst at Knight Frank. The pandemic continues to grip the world, but across much of Europe, lockdown measures are slowly easing. In this episode, we'll discuss what's happening on the ground, how countries plan to open up their property markets, and what investors should be looking out for over the next few weeks and months. Joining me to talk about this are Head of European Residential Sales, Mark Harvey, Head of UK Commercial Research, Will Matthews, and International Residential Research Partner, Kate Everett-Allen. So let's start by looking at which property markets are open for business. Well, on the commercial side, what are you seeing on the ground? What are the latest rules in Europe for buying and selling commercial property? The reality is that it isn't restrictions on commercial property transactions of themselves that are the impediment to deals taking place at the moment. I think it's more about the frictions around the movement of people and also the way that decisions get made. So for the smaller transactions, that's potentially less of an issue. But for the larger transactions, investors still want to see buildings in the flesh. And so that's why in the short term, investment in many of the gateway cities in Europe that we monitor, we think that could be much more locally driven than normal. And are you seeing more relaxed attitudes towards viewing offices at the moment? There's been some new guidance out this week, which sets out how people can go about doing that. And there's definitely been consistent interest over the past few months, albeit without the ability to view buildings. But now we're starting to see that become a reality again. So yes, that will certainly start to take place from this week and and indeed the next few weeks going forward. So Mark, on the residential side in Europe, clearly the UK has just opened for business on housing. But what are you seeing in other European countries? As you know, Europe started the lockdown a few weeks before us. And I'm pleased to say that actually most of our European associates are now open for business albeit with the obvious constraints in place that we are experiencing in the UK. And are there any countries that are particularly more advanced on the housing side? Are you seeing lots of activity in some countries more than others? It's fair to say that the countries that have come out of lockdown earliest have actually sort of rebounded quickest. We've seen particularly good levels of activity in, in Italy and France so far. The appeal of a sort of countryside home with a little bit of elbow room, fresh air and good views seems to be on the agenda at the moment. That said, the easements that we've seen in places like Berlin and Vienna, Paris are also encouraging and levels are are up, not quite to pre-COVID levels, but on their way, I would like to say. And as some of the rules are much tougher for some countries than others, you know, France had a very strict lockdown, a lot stricter than Germany, for example. So are you seeing sort of slightly more heavy restrictions perhaps on moving home in France than Germany and, and perhaps other countries? I think it's interesting to see that actually most countries have adopted very similar guidelines to the UK. The lockdown, whilst it was more severe and remains severe in, in Spain, for example, the actual sort of release guidance has been fairly homogenous across the board. We are seeing activity in terms of viewings returned. France opened up last Monday, and actually we had already a very sort of steep spike in activity and offers, I'm glad to report. Kate, what about you? You mentioned on last week's podcast that the relaxation of travel restrictions would be critical to the recovery of prime markets. We've heard recently some announcements about borders opening up, but what does this mean for Europe's prime sector? So I think there's tentative steps being taken. We've heard just in the last week about travel bubbles, but also about travel bridges. 
which are essentially the same thing, a means for countries to open their borders with other nations that have got sort of low and controlled number of cases of COVID-19. Most borders in Europe currently remain closed, but for some, there are plans afoot to reopen. So Italy has announced that it will open its borders on the 3rd of June. And on the 15th of June, Germany, Austria, France and Switzerland will do the same. But I think what we're expecting is something a bit similar to what's been mooted over in Australia and New Zealand with this sort of trans-Tasman link. So we think there'll be probably small blocks that will start to emerge with free movement of people within them. The Baltics, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania have done that as of the 15th of May. And there's an article actually this week by The Economist stating that much like trade agreements, the bigger the travel bubble, the greater the economic benefit. And it estimates that we could see potentially two large bubbles emerge globally, one in Asia Pacific and the other in Europe, reaching from the Baltic down to the Adriatic, which would then subsume these already formed smaller bubbles that we're hearing about. Thank you, Kate. Just turning now to the challenges that might arise out of coronavirus in Europe, both in the immediate term and the longer term, we've seen the Eurozone economy suffer the biggest falls in employment and activity on record. But how is this impacting their property markets? Kate, what's your view on which European cities are currently doing a bit better and likely to emerge perhaps slightly stronger out of coronavirus than others? I think that's quite a tough question. I think it's really early to try and pinpoint exactly which cities or even countries will emerge strongest. We've still got very limited amount of data coming out on the housing market, particularly for Europe, compared to markets like Asia. And I think it's going to depend a lot on different factors, both economic, social, demographic. So, for example, in terms of the government responses, they varied quite significantly. And we've seen them sort of ramp up over the last couple of weeks in particular. The scale of the crisis as well in different markets, for example, I think Germany has seen around 8,000 deaths, whereas Italy is around 32,000. But also on a sort of micro level, Milan, for example, has been harder hit than, say, Rome. So it's very difficult at the moment to be able to gauge exactly how that's going to play out. But also uh, where the market was at before the crisis. So in terms of demand and supply, those that might be struggling from structural undersupply of housing, which we talked about in our blog today about Berlin, which might actually support prices coming out of the, the crisis. And also those cities where there's already been significant amount of infrastructure spending targeting the market. So we're expecting to see, for example, places like Paris see a lot of spending ahead of the 2024 Paris Olympics. It's also got the Grand Paris project. We've got the Brandenburg Airport in Berlin. Assuming all of these big capital spending projects come to light, they could actually act as quite key stimulus for, for the local economy in these cities. I think on the investment side, those cities that are projected to see strong sort of youthful demographics, we'll see rising tenant demand, and maybe which have a bigger presence of sort of tech and creative industries, they may be more resilient. And then on, on the sort of second home lifestyle side, I think we're going to see the usual flight to quality. We saw that after the global financial crisis. Crisis. I think buyers will continue to want to rent their property. So they're going to prioritise locations which are accessible over those areas that are perhaps more remote and harder to rent. We saw, for example, after the financial crisis in 2008, this sort of story played out in Tuscany and Umbria. So we were starting to see prior to the financial crisis, second home buyers target more areas where they could get more for their money, value locations towards Umbria. But actually, when the crisis hit, we then saw them sort of retrench back to places like Florence and, and core Tuscan markets because they wanted to be able to ensure that they had that rental income as well. 
I think overall we'll see prime markets in the south of France, Provence, Tuscany, Mallorca. I think they'll continue to appeal to lifestyle buyers. Well, on the commercial side, how do you see the recession playing out across different European property sectors? Well, I think really this all boils down to confidence and the confidence that investors have in commercial income streams. I mean, it happens to be right now that with increased demands on retail supply chains, logistics property is seen as as very defensive. Tenants are very busy, they're profitable, they continue to pay rent. And so investors are prepared to pay for that. Therefore, that sector looks relatively safe, relatively defensive. But it's much harder to make that case for other types of property, retail being the obvious example. Shops are much less busy than than normal. Some retailers are struggling to stay afloat. The thing that we really are cautioning against at the moment is writing off entire sectors. And there is a bit of that going on in the media. The reality is there are properties with risky income streams in any sector. It's going to be those properties as much as specific sectors that are going to be the ones that would be penalised by investors. And in contrast, good buildings with strong tenants arguably be an even greater demand because in a nutshell, equities remain volatile, government bonds yields are incredibly low. So real estate as an investment class is looking attractive at the moment. You've obviously been looking at different economic and financial metrics to get some understanding of what's going on. What would have been the most interesting takeaways from that and what do you think they mean for property markets in Europe? Well, look, we really monitor things that fall into two different camps and the first set of indicators track risk appetite and the other set look at things that indicate growth prospects and in the first group we're looking at metrics like the VIX index which measures expected stock market volatility and that's actually been falling in recent weeks and we also look at government bond yields particularly the differences between countries and for example if you look at Italy's 10-year bond yields at the moment they're much higher than those of Germany's and that implies that Germany is seen as a much safer bet in financial terms. So it's things like that that give us a bit of a clue as to where investors might look to place their real estate investment capital as well. I think the other things that we've looked at is, you know, we've really had to change from looking at sort of traditional metrics like GDP and export data to get a feel for growth to actually things that are much more immediate. And those are things like energy consumption, which we can look at on a daily or even hourly basis if we need to. And and that, again, is showing that the first stages of a rise in activity in Europe and also indicators like the Baltic Dry Index. And that measures the cost of shipping goods, which is therefore quite a good proxy for production output. So all of these things are sort of slowly on the rise at the moment. And therefore, we're sort of looking at those thinking that that's a good indicator of a bit of a recovery from a very low base in activity across Europe at the moment. And how do you say requirements are changing in Europe? We've already heard a bit about, in the UK at least, just more people looking, say, for more outside space. Are you seeing any evidence in different European countries of buyers prioritising things like office space or perhaps better broadband or gardens? Yes, it's fair to say that the appeal for a countryside property offering greater space and open views near what we might call good transport and communication links is definitely on the rise, perhaps favouring those sort of locations over and above city demand at this point in time. Actually, the the figures that we're seeing in Madrid suggest a real shift from city centre living to more peripheral type locations. And on a more cultural side, do you think that over the long term that this could really have a significant impact just in terms of cities perhaps being less densely populated by residential blocks? It's an interesting point and something which I think will be discussed a great deal in the months, if not years to come. The French are very excited about the opportunity 
for a sort of decentralization, if you wish, away from Paris and towards tier two cities, tier three cities, which is very much akin to their egalitarian outlook on life and society. And I do think it makes sense in, in many regards. The lessons we've learned from working from home, the support that technology offers us, it does reduce the need for us all to be sort of traipsing into city centres, perhaps, over the long term and, you know, sort of rediscover that more provincial and sort of healthier lifestyle, more homebound lifestyle. I think a lot of people have actually been quite surprised by And where do you see the opportunity for investors? Do you see London as retaining the crown or do you think Berlin may increasingly give it a run for its money? I think the biggest challenge you face with Berlin is probably the language. London is the preeminent force and the capital of the world, if I could say so, both in terms of a democratic and also economic and political way. And I think this is something will be difficult to topple. I think London will remain at the epicenter of the global business and is very unlikely to lose its crown. That said, in a world that is becoming, as I said, more spread out, you're going to find that cities that are not alpha cities like London, such as Berlin, Paris, Barcelona, will fare much better in the future and get a greater share of world investments and ultimately wealth. Let's look now into the future and think a bit about what else investors should be watching out for. Clearly, there's a government role in all of this. Kate, what are your views really on European governments and what they're doing to support property markets and what they could do to ensure that they get back on their feet again post-COVID? I guess one key move is to allow estate agents to be the first tranche of businesses to be permitted to return to work. And so far, I think they've met that need largely. And we've seen it in the UK, in France, in Germany, Spain, quite a number of our markets, which is all very positive. I think in terms of buyer costs, a reduction in property taxes, whether that's stamp duty in the UK or transfer tax on the continent, even if it's only a sort of temporary holiday, I think that would result in significant stronger market activity, motivating buyers to act sooner rather than later. And we touched on the the infrastructure projects earlier. I think if they can ring fence that spending so that that is protected and we know that some of the big infrastructure projects will definitely come to light, I think that will do a lot in terms of having a a bit of a multiplier effect and potentially prompting greater regeneration. Obviously, normalising travel and opening borders, which again we've covered and potentially helping first-time buyers. So the latest data that we've seen here in the UK is that it's the younger generation who have lost out the greatest income during lockdown. So I think potentially some greater support for first-time buyers would be welcome. And also speeding up the planning process. We hear quite a lot from our network about in certain cities just how protracted that process can be. And so to make it more efficient for developers to ensure that there is adequate supply, which will hopefully reduce the pressure on prices and potentially rents, I think that would be quite critical. And then finally, I guess it's reiterating the fact that the housing market has such a a multiplier effect on other parts of the economy. So by helping the housing market, governments will also help to ensure that sort of building, DIY, removal firms, etc. are also starting to feel the benefit of some of that greater activity. Well, how about you? Do you think the government role is important or do you think, particularly for officers, that it will be the private sector that will need to really innovate to keep things relevant? Well, I agree. I think it's both, actually. And I think what we've benefited from this time around in this particular crisis across Europe is governments that have actually stepped in pretty early and pretty significantly to shore up labour markets and basically keep people in incomes, even if they haven't been in employment necessarily. So the furlough schemes, I think, have been on the face of it incredibly effective. Yes, we've seen consumption fall and we've 
all heard of the struggles that retailers are facing at the moment, but it could have been much worse, I think. So I think to continue to do this is, is particularly important and also to provide confidence by messaging the next steps really, really clearly. But I also think just touching on the infrastructure piece and the built environment generally, I think we've got a really interesting opportunity now to reshape the way that we think almost about every facet, I suppose, of the built environment and reshaping what we do with a much greater focus on sustainability. And I think the government's got a, a really important role to play in that as we all sort of grapple with with how we get back to work and how we do so in, in a way that's perhaps less unsustainable for the environment as previous practices were. Kate and Will have spoken quite a lot about government intervention in all of this. You must speak to your contacts daily and you must be hearing a lot about what the EU is doing. What is your view, I guess, of how much intervention the EU should be doing and how well it's done so far? Well, actually, the EU, I think, has done incredibly well throughout the crisis. I would say, uh, slightly tongue-in-cheek, they've had a crisis to deal with not so long ago. And they've been very quick at sort of pulling out all of the stops, financial, fiscal and monetary. What happens now will be really key in terms of the sort of well-being and, and long-term stability of Europe. There have been a few chinks in the armour, I dare say, between some neighbouring countries, but I think that was at the height of the crisis. I think coming out of this, I think there's a real determination at sort of Brussels level and from the central bank in particular to ensure that Europe rides this wave and comes out of it stronger. It will imply, I dare say, fiscal changes. And we're already beginning to sort of see utterings, particularly in Spain, of taxes, wealth taxes being imposed on the sort of top 1,000, 2,000 wealthiest people, which I dare say will follow in most countries. We're going to have to sort of refund all this money. But I think overall, Europe is determined to keep going. And the appetite, certainly we've seen from very sophisticated and very broad range of clients has been incredible and very reassuring, I hasten to add, with people wishing, very much wishing to go back to normality, take a position, even under lockdown circumstances, are very prepared to put offers forward at what is still a relatively uncertain time. Well, do you think if you were to look into your crystal ball, how would you say the built environment could look in Europe in five years time? I think five years is probably the minimum you'd need really to make an answer on that one. I think that's right. I mean, all of these projects, all of these decisions in real estate, they tend to have a lot of inertia and, and very long timelines. But I think it is an interesting time to think about how people work, for example, and, and where they work. And whilst we certainly see a long term future for those key employment hubs and, and offices in key central locations. We think that's absolutely critical. But there's also an interesting question about people working closer to their homes, spending more time with their families, being able to do so, maybe spending less time commuting and, and being able to get to effective workplaces without having to either drive long distances, fly or, or indeed travel on trains and buses. How about you, Kate? Clearly, Europe faces a very deep recession. But as Will points out, there are also lots of opportunities, particularly on the sustainability side. But how do you think European cities and countries can leverage those opportunities? I think you're right. I think we've got to be realistic that the EU is now facing perhaps its worst recession as a block with the economy. I think it's due to, to contract by around 7% this year. And consumer confidence has inevitably taken a bit of a, a pounding as well. But there are positives. There's low interest rates, which we expect to remain low for some time. 
There's also quite a lot of property friendly initiatives that look set to remain on the landscape for some time. So we've got obviously golden visas in a number of markets, the non-habitual residence tax in Portugal that we talked about last week. And there's also the Italian flat tax as well. And I think they might do quite a lot to attract overseas sort of non-European demand. And I guess the next thing that we really need to monitor are the, the sort of softer indicators, consumer behaviour and sentiment, a bit like Will was talking about. Will buyers be willing to make that journey and take that plunge in acquiring a new home? Evidence from the last two weeks is that there is volume. We're starting to see, as I said, online viewings pick up. And there's a report actually by UBS who suggests that markets often tend to underestimate the resilience of consumers in a crisis, which I thought was was an interesting angle. They were talking about we've seen revenge spend in China, for example, where people are sort of spending from forced savings acquired during the lockdown and the impact that might have on the market. I think there's the next few months we'll be sort of monitoring these sorts of indicators and consumer sentiment quite closely. If you enjoyed this episode of Intelligence Talks, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also make sure to share this episode on social media and check out the show notes for more information. Thank you.